It happened in Providence, as we found out today. Um, as Reformed Christians, most of us that are here today believe in the sovereignty of God. And when we speak of the sovereignty of God, we're referring to God's complete control over all creation. You see, as Lord of creation, the Bible teaches us that God exercises his authority over everything in the universe so that there's nothing that occurs on earth nor in the heavens above apart from his holy will. And again, most of us Reformed folks are just fine with that. What we may not be so familiar with, or perhaps as comfortable with, is the doctrine of the providence of God. And the providence of God could best be described, as R.C. Sproul said, as the invisible hand of God that works in human affairs. You see, through God's providence, God governs the world in such a way that he ensures that everything that happens comes to pass according to his eternal design. And you can probably see why this doctrine is a bit more controversial than the sovereignty of God, because it explains for us in a bit more detail just how exactly God brings those purposes to pass, right? How he works through the voluntary actions of human beings, of angels, and even the forces of nature to accomplish all his good pleasure on earth. And this doctrine of providence, stands in direct opposition to the teaching of evolutionary science, for example, that teaches that the universe is governed by blind chance or by fate. But it also opposes the philosophy of deism, right? That God just somehow wound up the world mysteriously like a clock and lets it run on its own, all alone, apart from his control. But as we shall see, the doctrine of providence is not only taught in the Bible, friends, but it's also meant to be a great source of comfort and encouragement for all of us today as Christians, because it teaches us that God is neither passive nor distant nor unconcerned with our daily struggles in life as believers, especially when we encounter hard times in opposition for his namesake. On the contrary, the doctrine of God's providence teaches us that as our loving Heavenly Father, God actively governs everything in our lives in such a way that not a hair will fall from our head apart from his will. And in our story today, friends, we'll see exactly how the providence of God was such a great source of comfort and encouragement for the Apostle Paul as well, as he faced overwhelming trials and opposition in his life and ministry. So our text today is taken from Acts chapter 23, verses 11 through 25. Acts chapter 23, verses 11 through 20, 35. Let me pray for us once again really quickly before we begin. Father, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to preach your word. May you bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, that is, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot 
and they bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor to drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. We are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for Paul, who have bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor to drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one what you have informed, that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 20, 200 spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea on the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused and questions about their law, but charged with nothing deserving death nor imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipartus. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So let me remind you really quickly where we are today, friends, in our passage. If you recall, Paul is currently in a prison cell in Jerusalem where he there encounters the risen Christ who tells him that he must also testify about him in Rome, verse 11. This is Paul's predicament that, we, that he finds himself in. This is his current situation. However, our text also warns us that there are over 40 Jewish terrorists who have sworn by oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they assassinate Paul, even if they die in the process. And so 
Here, at least, at this point in the story, we're faced with kind of a standoff, right? We're faced with kind of a standoff. A standoff between the the will of God on the one hand and the will of man on the other. Both sides, I would venture to guess, will refuse to compromise or bag down from their respective positions. You see, the problem is that Jesus has promised Paul that he'll make it to Rome in order to testify concerning him while the terrorists have sworn that he won't. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think prevailed in this situation? You see, it just so happens in our story that Paul's nephew will learn about the assassination plot against him and bring the news to Paul, who then sends him to the Roman tribune, who not only listened to the boy's story, but he also takes the steps to keep Paul safe by commanding over 400 soldiers to safely escort Paul all the way to Rome. So as we look at our passage this morning, friends, I want you to consider with me the mysterious and amazing nature of God's providence in the midst of all the crazy and unexpected events and details of Paul's life so that you and me all, you, me, and all of us here may be encouraged and comforted as we see that God really does work all things out for our good as believers. So there are three things that we can learn from Paul's experience today, three aspects of God's providence that can comfort and encourage us when we encounter hardships as Christians. So when we face trials and opposition uh, to our service for the Lord, we can be encouraged that God is present with us, first and foremost, verse 11. Secondly, when we, face, when we face trials and opposition in our service for the Lord, we can be encouraged that God has power over our problems, verses 12 through 15. And then thirdly, when we face trials and opposition, we can be encouraged that God's providence works through coincidence. God's providence works through coincidence. God is present with us. He has power over our problems, and his providence works through coincidence. But first, what can we learn from God's presence with Paul in verse 11. Well, Paul's situation right now is pretty bleak, right? At least from a human perspective, things are not looking so good for Paul. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Just a couple days prior to Paul's imprisonment here in verse 11, he had just survived several attempts on his life. Think about it. In chapter 21, we're told that the Jews in Jerusalem seized Paul dragged him out of the temple, and tried to kill him by beating him until they were stopped by the Roman soldiers who were present. In chapter 22, we're told that Paul preached the gospel to some Jews in the temple, and then they raised their voices and said, away with this fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And also in verse 10 of chapter 23, the Roman tribune here was so afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by the Pharisees that he commanded him to be taken away from them and thrown in prison. And so here in verse 11, Paul is now all alone by himself on one of the darkest days of his life, just hours before some Jewish assassins hatch yet another plot to take his life. But notice that on that night, Jesus appeared to Paul and said to him, take courage. Now, what what was it that Paul needed to be comforted by Jesus about at this point in his life and ministry. 
What exactly was it that made Paul so discouraged, downcast? Because Jesus, remember, would never have come to comfort Paul if he didn't truly need it. So what likely made this night so difficult for Paul was that deep down, in his heart of hearts, he truly longed for the salvation of his fellow Jews. You see, from his perspective, all the opportunities that he had to evangelize them seemed to have come to nothing. As far as Paul could tell, his witness to them was bearing no fruit. But on the contrary, he was attacked all the time. And so his witnessing to them seemed to incite their further hostility against him. And perhaps in his discouragement, Paul blamed himself because there were not a lot of Jews being converted through his preaching. And so it was on the darkness of night that Jesus came to Paul, stood by him, essentially complimented him on a job well done, saying, take courage, Paul, for as you have faithfully testified about me in Jerusalem. Now, we might be tempted here to think, what? Wait a minute. A job well done. It's not a record of a single person being converted in these passages through Paul's, Paul's preaching in Jerusalem. How then can Paul be commended by Jesus as a faithful servant? You see, that's exactly what Jesus says to him. You see, surprisingly, Jesus had no words of condemnation for Paul. He didn't say, Paul, why would you go ahead and screw this up? Why would you blow it? No, not a single person, Paul, came to faith through your preaching. Now, why? Why didn't Jesus condemn him? Well, according to Jesus, you see, in spite of all the negative responses that Paul had to his faithful testimony about God, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. You see, Paul testified faithfully about Jesus, and he left the results to God. You see, like us, friends, Paul's responsibility as a disciple of Christ was not to gauge the success of his ministry in any quantifiable terms, like the results or number of converts that he made, but rather, Paul's responsibility was to faithfully proclaim God's word to his people and to leave the results to God. You see, all too often, we judge the quality of our service for the Lord by a set of objective results that we can measure or see ourselves. Like how many people showed up for a Bible study or a community group, how many people we have on our membership role at church, or how many people gave us positive feedback on a sermon we preached or a Bible study lesson we taught. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for constructive criticism in ministry and in life. You see, if we constantly receive negative feedback or see no visible results at all from our ministry, we probably should seek to evaluate the methods we're using are correct or not. But in many such cases, such as with the prophets of the Old Testament, like Jeremiah and Paul in this case, we may faithfully serve the Lord for years and still receive mostly negative results and responses to our faithful 
witness for Christ. And if that's true, friends, then that means that the main criteria for evaluating whether our service for the Lord has been faithful is not necessarily quantifiable, but rather it's our faithfulness to God. We must ask ourselves, are we being faithful to him in the area that he has placed us to serve him? Are we relying on God and acting in obedience to what he's called us to do for his kingdom? If you can answer yes to those questions, friends, then even if you're criticized, or even if you see little to no numerical results when you witness to others, you can be confident in your heart that like Paul, Jesus is pleased with your service. Yes, as Christians, we're all called to faithfully labor for the kingdom. Absolutely. But we must also keep in mind that it is God who brings forth the harvest. As those who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, this is a great source of comfort to us, right? Knowing that when it comes to the business of saving souls for eternity, in the end, a person's salvation doesn't ultimately rest on the accuracy of our carefully crafted, crafted testimonies as believers or in our unique ability to speak or persuade people about the truth of the gospel message. No, our responsibility is to faithfully proclaim the gospel and to trust and pray that all those whom God has ordained to eternal life will believe it. And that's exactly why in the very midst of his discouragement, Jesus appeared to Paul in order to assure him of his presence. And just how was it that Jesus chose to comfort Paul? Just what exactly did he say to him? Well, in the middle of verse 11, Jesus tells Paul to take courage, right? Now, what does this mean? Well, the phrase take courage literally means to be of good cheer, right? It means to be firm or resolute in the face of danger, right? Now, who at this point needed to hear this more than Paul, right? This word is the same word that Jesus used in John 16 when he told his, his disciples the night before his crucifixion to be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, right? Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Paul was scared, right? But rather, the Jesus Way of encourage, this was Jesus' way of encouraging Paul to persevere, to keep going through everything he would experience, to keep on faithfully testifying about Jesus until uh, Paul was finished, and Jesus was finished with the work that he had Paul, for Paul to do. And that's why the Lord says very distinctly in verse 11 that Paul must also testify about him in Rome. So Jesus' goal was not just to cheer Paul up, but also to heal and minister to the soul of his very downcast disciple at this point, this time of need in his ministry. Friends, are you discouraged about your present life circumstances? Are you currently experiencing hardships or difficulties in your workplace or in your life? Are you feeling down about some past mistakes you made? Are you anxious about the future? Well, Jesus wants you to also take courage, friends, 
because he's promised to be right there with you in the very midst of all your problems, just like he was for the Apostle Paul here. And I know this because he's promised us in his word that he would never leave us nor forsake us all the time while we're on earth. And therefore, as Christian friends, when we face trials and opposition in our service to the Lord, we can be comforted and encouraged knowing that God is present with us. And this brings us to our second point, which is we can be encouraged when we face opposition in life as Christians because we know that God has power over our problems. Look at verses 12 through 15 with me. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, the Sanhedrin, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, the Roman tribune, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near You see, up until this point, the Jews had tried and failed on several occasions to have Paul executed by Rome. But unfortunately for them, things weren't turning out quite like they planned. And in God's providence, this Roman tribune chose to protect Paul by putting him in prison until he figured out exactly what was going on. And so these Jews must have felt like their golden opportunity to kill Paul was slipping right through their fingers. And so shortly after Paul's testimony to the Jewish council, these group of 40 assassins conspired together to come up with a reliable, fail-safe plan to kill Paul with the help of the Sanhedrin. And verse 12 tells us that they were so very fanatical in their desperation to have Paul killed that they, they even bound themselves by oath to neither eat nor drink until they had succeeded. Now, I don't know about you, friends, But whenever you see me take a vow not to eat or to drink anything, right, you can be absolutely sure that I'm pretty darn serious because I absolutely love food, right? And my wife knows this. But the point is that there are plenty of good reasons in the Bible for us to fast, right? However, the problem is that murder is simply not one of them. That's just how fanatical zealous these Jews were in their desire to kill Paul. The fact that they were so very zealous to take Paul's life, uh, they were literally willing to forfeit their own lives because they knew that by killing Paul, while he was under Roman protection, a great number of them would most likely die in the process. And even those who happened to be captured by Rome in the course of killing Paul would also be tried and executed as well, possibly by crucifixion. You see, these zealots were similar to modern suicide bombers in our day who are more than willing to die for what they deem to be a holy and righteous cause, right? And so in their blind zeal to have Paul killed, these Jewish assassins suggested that the chief priests and elders tell a lie to the Roman tribune by pretending that they wanted another in-person meeting with Paul so that they might lie in wait to take Paul's life. Now, obviously, their lie was a sin, wasn't it? 
their lie was a sin. And so what we have here is an example of a deeply religious people who claim to be keepers of the law, a deeply religious people who claim to honor the law, who were more than willing, though, to break at least three of those laws to get what it was they wanted. Because they were very willing to lie, to murder, and to steal by kidnapping Paul in order to accomplish their goals. Now I want you to take a minute and think about the sheer hypocrisy of their actions. You see, these very same Jews who were so furious at the Apostle Paul because they believed that he was guilty of teaching the Jews to forsake the law of Moses. They also accused him of bringing some Gentile pagans into the temple of God to defile it. Now, none of these things were true, of course, but in their minds, in order to honor God and to protect the sanctity of God's temple, they were willing to dishonor God by killing the Apostle Paul. You see, the irony here, right, is quite profound. You see, these Jews were some of the very people that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 10 when he said that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They were hypocrites who were willing to condemn the Apostle Paul for the very same sin that they allowed in themselves. You see that? In a sermon titled Religious Affections, Jonathan Edwards He describes this kind of false zeal that these religious zealots show like this. Edwards says, when a person has false zeal against sin, it is usually against some particular sin only. For example, some people who are very zealous against the sin of profanity and self-indulgence in other people will themselves be notorious for backbiting those who have wronged them and coveting the things that do not belong to them. You see the hypocrisy in that. False zeal, Edward says, is against the sin of others, but he that has true zeal exercises it chiefly against himself, right? Against his very own sins. And sadly, friends, even as Christians, all of us are incredibly capable of this same kind of hypocrisy, of exaggerating the sin of others while we ignore or minimize that sin in ourselves. In fact, we regularly fail to hold ourselves up to the very same standards that we judge other people with, right? For example, there are many of us as Christians who are are eager to express our moral outrage over particular sins that we're passionate about, right? Or things we feel like are important to us, like Reformed theology, politics, gender rights, abortion and the sanctity of marriage. You can find all kinds of blog posts and Facebook updates where Christians are engaged all the time in fierce debates over many of these things. What we rarely see on Facebook, blog posts, or even sometimes in person is outrage and repentance over our very own sins as God's people, over the sins that we all commit before a holy and righteous God on a daily basis. You see, no matter how right we are in our assessment of another person's sin, we are never justified to sin against God by breaking his law in order to make our point. Because that, friends, is the very essence 
of hypocrisy. See the beauty of having godly sorrow over our sin is that it points us all to the Lord Jesus Christ and it leads us all to the foot of the cross. And there, the blood of Jesus assures us that we will never be condemned, but only cleansed and forgiven by his precious blood. And then and only then, friends, can we truly live out our call to be salt and light and offer a true perspective on what the Bible has to say to other people about their sin. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that we all shouldn't be a little bit angry and heartbroken over sin that we see committed around us. I'm just saying that we must first begin by looking at our very own sin. And this is why Jesus tells us to take the plank out of our own eye, right? You see, whatever it is that we feel so passionate about in our zeal to protect God's honor as Christians, let's be careful that we don't justify our very own sin in the process. Because as we can see from our text, zeal and devotion to God alone in matters of religion are not necessarily evidence that a person's heart is right with God. And that's a scary situation. These zealous Jews who were hypocrites, who sought to kill Paul but were unable to do it, they could not carry it out because in providence, God had power over Paul's problem. And that brings us to our last and final point, which is God's providence through coincidence. God's providence through coincidence. Look at verses 16 to 22 with me. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard about their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. And he has something to tell you. And the tribune took this young man by the hand, and going aside, he asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire some more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for there are more than 40 of their men that are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor to drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed this young man, charging him or telling him, tell no one of the things that you have informed me. Now, at this point, it's important for us to remember, friends, that Jesus' words to Paul earlier, when he appeared to Paul in prison and tell him that he must also bear witness for him in Rome, right? And that word must in the Greek literally meant that it was absolutely necessary for Paul to go to Rome. It's absolutely necessary. You must go there. So hopefully it's, it's clear to all of us by now that according to God's sovereign determination that there was absolutely nothing that could keep Paul from making it to Rome. Nothing at all. The matter had been decided. It had been sovereignly determined by God. But what Jesus didn't tell Paul, however, was that in getting to Rome, it would involve Paul being involved in several plots against his life and many various other trials that Paul would experience from, that from a human perspective would make it appear 
that it is impossible for Paul to reach his destination. For example, he doesn't tell Paul that there are over 40 assassins who are presently plotting to take his life. He doesn't tell Paul that there are two years that he will languish in prison all alone in Caesarea before he gets to Rome. Likewise, he doesn't tell Paul that he will be shipwrecked at the Mediterranean Sea or that he will arrive in Rome bound as a prisoner. No, all he tells Paul is that he will absolutely bear witness for him in Rome. But as far as all the circumstances surrounding Paul's getting to Rome, at least from a human perspective, it would appear that Paul made it there by coincidence, right? What is coincidence? Coincidence can be described in the dictionary. I looked it up. As a remarkable concurrence of, of events or circumstances without an apparent causal connection. Let me repeat that again. Coincidence is a remarkable concurrence of events or circumstances without an apparent causal connection. In other words, the coincidence is just a pagan term for luck or chance or happenstance, right? For example, so uh, if Paul were to talk to a non-Christian after he arrived in Rome and described everything that it took for him to get there, the very first thing that that non-Christian would tell him is, gee, Paul, what a coincidence. I can't believe you made it through all, all the way to Rome, through everything you experienced. You're telling me you made it all the way? Fate must have been on your side. You got good fortune, brother. Or they say, man, you survived all those things, Paul, by chance. Right? Perhaps that's the, what they would say to Paul. But you see, as Christians, we know better, right? We all know that these are just empty pagan concepts that are really used to describe what we refer to as the providence of God. Even though they may appear to the untrained eye as coincidence, we know that God was at work in all these events to deliver Paul from danger. You see, God was working in providence behind the scenes of everything, all these seemingly coincidental events in Paul's life in order to ensure that his will would come to pass. You know, the French have a saying for the term coincidence as it relates to God's providence. They say, coincidence is merely an event in which God wishes to remain anonymous. <laughs> I think they're right. Now, real quickly, let's look at some of the seeming coincidences that took place as God delivered Paul from the plot to take his life. First of all, I'm absolutely positive that these 40 Jews who wanted to kill Paul so bad that they were willing not to eat or drink and they were willing to risk their lives, also, they went to great lengths, I bet, to keep their plan a secret. They didn't want anybody to find out about it, right? And ruin their plans altogether. That's why it's so very coincidental that a person from outside their inner circle would discover their plot to kill Paul. And what's even more coincidental, though, is that the one person who uncovers their plot to kill Paul happens to be very, Paul's very own nephew. Now, I didn't even know Paul had a nephew. We're not, this is the first time he's mentioned in the Bible, right? But it's ironic that he happens to be there and hear, overhear their plot. And what are the chances of him even being in Jerusalem, so close to these assassins at this point in time when they were plotting to kill Paul, right? It's probably slim to none. And notice also how Paul's nephew was also granted access to visit Paul in prison and even speak with him, even though the Apostle Paul was such a very high-profile prisoner. 
right? Is that by coincidence as well? And what about the willingness of the Roman tribune to take this boy by the hand and even listen to what he had to say, first and foremost, right? I mean, this is a Roman military commander. We would expect somebody like that to be arrogant, uh, abrasive, easily annoyed, and unwilling to listen to the words of a simple peasant, right? A peasant Jew who's not even on his level. And yet the text tells us that that's exactly what he did. In fact, this tribune, he, he goes so far as to treat this kid with respect in verse 22 because when he dismisses him, he actually trusted that this kid would not tell anybody about the conversation they had about Paul. So not only did he believe him, but he trusted them to keep their conversation a secret. Now, that's got to be by coincidence, right? You know, when I read this passage today and I think about God's providence, I can't help but think about all the little coincidences that have occurred throughout my own life as well to get me to the point where I am today. You see, as a teenager, I can remember on at least two occasions where I just narrowly avoid being killed, shot and killed on the south side of Chicago. And on one of those occasions, the guy himself pointed the gun at me and simply chose not to pull the trigger, right? Coincidentally, you see, he made the choice to spare my life by not pulling the trigger. Why? Why did he do that? I never got a chance to ask him, right? I didn't want to talk to him any, anyway. But as an unbeliever, I knew right away that it was God who preserved my life. Another coincidence happened during my very first year in seminary in 2009 in Jackson, Mississippi, when I just happened to meet a beautiful young woman named Tina from Finland who had already graduated a year before and was only staying in the U.S. because her, she had visa problems, right? She really should have left the year before. She should never have been there. So coincidentally, we met and fell in love, and the rest was history. Now, I can go on, on and on about all the various coincidences in my life, but I want, I want you to think about yourself, friends. What about you? When you think back on your life, can you see instances in your life, seeming coincidences that occurred at the right place and the right time to make you the person that you are today, right? Perhaps just one minor difference might have changed the entire course of your life. Can you see the invisible hand of God's providence in your lives? Perhaps in where you decided to live and go to school. Perhaps you can see his providence in who you decided to marry. Perhaps the career path you chose. Friends, I hope you're beginning to see that every aspect of your lives as believers has been shaped by these seemingly thousands of coincidental choices that were made by yourself and others, but yet it was really God who was at work in your life, orchestrating and directing all the aspects of your life so that you may be the person that you are today. In Providence, God guided you all the various details of your lives in such a way that everything you experience, friends, whether good or bad, happened according to his will. And that's exactly why Romans 8.28 tells us that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his good purposes. As Christians, friends, every triumph and tragedy, every sorrow and every surprise, every disappointment and every delight that we face in life have all been planned 
by the sovereign hand of God. Friends, I want to conclude this sermon today with a hymn that was written by a man named William Cooper that captures the very essence for us of God's providence. And the title of this hymn is called, you might have heard it, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's beautiful. Listen to what he says here. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan God's works in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray, friends. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, Lord, are your judgments, and inscrutable are your ways. They are past finding out. Father, thank you so much that you love us and that you work all things out for our good as your people. And you have promised us, Lord, that one day we will know as we are known and we will see as we have have been seen. And we will praise you, Lord, for providentially loving us and bringing us, Lord, to the eternal state of heaven where we will forever, forevermore, Lord, be taken away from all suffering, sin, pain, and death. And we will forever be in your presence, forever. Thank you, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.